You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Augustine called the Sermon on the Mount a perfect standard of the Christian life. John Calvin said it collected into one place the leading points of the doctrine of Christ, which related to a devout and holy life. Yet, for many Christians, the Sermon on the Mount is as perplexing as it is inspiring, giving us at once impossible commands and heartwarming quotations, containing the verses we love most alongside those we fear most. So, what is the Sermon on the Mount really for? According to Jonathan Pennington, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is for flourishing a call to the happy life of virtue, at peace with the Father in heaven and our brothers and sisters on earth. In making his case, Pennington draws on resources, both Hebrew and Greek, placing the virtue ethics of Jesus in fruitful conversation with both Moses and Aristotle. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Jonathan Pennington, Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and author of The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, a theological commentary published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Pennington. Hey, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Well, you are a scholar of the Gospels, especially of Matthew. I looked through your Vita, and a lot of Matthew shows up there. What led to your interest in that book in particular, and to this book project? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and uh, other people have asked me that, so it's given me an opportunity to think about that. And the answer is, uh, from a Providence perspective, very beautiful, from a human perspective, very random, and that is that uh, <laughs> I have been studying Matthew for about... 15 years straight or a little bit more and teaching it in all kinds of contexts. And that's been a joy. But about 10 years ago, uh, I started teaching a modular class um, on the Sermon on the Mount. So it was like a one-week class in January that I did five years in a row. And why did I start doing that? Well, I saw it in the course catalog and thought, well, I'm Matthew guy, I could probably teach a class on the Sermon on the Mount, you know. <laughs> and so that was about as thoughtful as it was. And then very quickly, I began to realize, oh, I don't know anything about this very important part of the Bible. I mean, I knew some general Matthew stuff, but, uh, you know, as you probably know, the only way to really learn something is to teach it. So Mm -hmm. the providential part of it was that I'm so thankful. I mean, it's changed my life. It's changed my career. At least it led me into all kinds of uh, other fields of study, Greek philosophy, uh, ethics, and virtue ethics, and just all kinds of things that have that blossomed in the last 10 years of my life that were just because I happened to see it in the course catalog and nobody had taught it in a long time. And I thought I'd take a stab at it. So uh, that's really the uh, less, uh, less than glorious story of why I chose it, but I'm very thankful, very glad um, for that. And so as I began to teach the sermon, I very quickly realized that I did need to learn a lot. And so, as I mentioned, I started to just self-educate in all those areas in Greek philosophy and in the history of ethics, that was a big one. I realized I don't really know much about ethics and and began to educate myself in that. And of course, it's a massive field. But then as I began to begin to teach, I thought people said, you know, you should really write some of this stuff down that you're teaching. And I thought, OK, that's I'll do that. And uh, the problem is I'm a slow writer. So 10 years later, I finally got the book done. You know, so I wrote for about five years on it after teaching for about five years. And so hmm. that's how I got into it. That's plenty of time to to digest your your thinking on it. Five years of teaching will do a lot of that. That's true. 
Well, can you give us a sketch of the stature of the Sermon on the Mount in Christianity historically? Uh, why should we pay careful attention to this discourse? Yeah, that's good, and it, and it relates to some of the things I was just saying um, that I didn't really realize this myself fully, but what is well recognized is that, uh, to put it in the words of uh, the late uh, Matthew Scholar R.T. France, early Christianity was largely Matthean Christianity, and, and hmm. what's being said by that is the, just the acknowledgement that it's very clear from the early days of the Church, or from the late first century anyways, that Matthew's gospel was really dominant in the Church's self-understanding, and it's not difficult to see this. Um, you see all kinds of ways in which the liturgy is influenced by uh, Matthew's way of writing, like the Lord's Prayer, the version of it we have is primarily from Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about the Great Commission, you think about the ecclesiological passages of heaven and earth and binding and loosing in chapter 18. Um, you just go through, there's all these ways in which clearly Matthew had a major influence on the Church's understanding, and that's why it's the first gospel. Mm-hmm. Even though we would understand it's not probably the first written gospel, but the reason it was canonically placed as first is because of its great importance. Um, well, the Sermon on the Mount's part of that, and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, to 7, it both contributes to that dominance of Matthew, and also, you know, it's highlighted by the fact that Matthew was so well-read and so widely distributed. Mm. So the sermon has, has long been, you know, at the core of Christian reflection, and you can see that when you do, when you look, for example, at the indices that count up uh, what texts the Church Fathers most preach on and comment on. The mm-hmm. Sermon on the Mount that by orders of magnitude every time. And throughout the history of the Church, the sermon uh, just continues to have a huge influence. And in your nice little introductory paragraph, you mentioned some of the, the just think about things like the Golden Rule and the mm-hmm. uh, antitheses. You've heard it said, I say to you, the uh, question of what's the relationship of the Mosaic Covenant to the to the New Covenant you know, Matthew 5.17 is absolutely essential for that. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think of the images of wolves and sheep's clothing, of trees bearing fruit, of the wise and foolish builders, about the Heavenly Father's care for more than a sparrow. All that's from the Sermon on the Mount. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really remarkable. And so its influence, its beauty, its power, uh, once you start studying, it just draws you into its... Uh, wonderful vortex. Well, we should say something about how, I guess, that wonderful vortex came to be. <laughs> the, yeah. the composition of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, presumably Jesus didn't have a stenographer next to him transcribing the whole discourse verbatim, and if he did, it was really, really short. Uh, it right. doesn't actually take that long to read the Sermon right. on the Mount. Um, on the other hand, uh, I don't think Matthew is Thucydides, just kind of making up what he thinks are appropriate speeches for historical figures. So what sort of thing are we reading in the Sermon on the Mount? How much of this is the, the evangelist composition and how much of this is the very words of the Lord? Can we, can we make that call? (laughs) Yeah. Well, we can take a stab at it, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, um, that's a good question and one that comes up a lot. Um, I teach the Gospels all the time, and these kind of questions over the relation with the Gospels, the history, are, are very important ones. And some of those things I do address in an earlier book I had done called Reading the Gospels Wisely, where I tried mm-hmm. to wrestle with some of that too. But okay. particularly on the sermon, 
Um, you know, along with the history of the Orthodox Church, you know, I believe in the veracity and authority of Holy Scripture, its faithful and true witness. And yet within that, of course, not yet in a contrastive sense, but just within that, there's always been recognized that faithful retelling doesn't mean closed-circuit television. You know, mm-hmm. in fact, I don't know if you mentioned it, but the you know, something along the ideas of ipsima, ipsism of Vox versus ipsism of Verba, yeah. that idea of that the Church has always recognized that even though we don't always have the exact words of Jesus in the sense of they, they vary, actually, the same instances, the evangelists have Jesus' words varying, but we have the ipsism of Vox, we have the, the true voice of Jesus. I mean, that's a very ancient understanding, mm-hmm. and one that would certainly be long affirmed in orthodoxy. And the most basic ways to see that is that few people, although there's always debate on this, few people would imagine that Jesus goes around teaching in Palestine in Greek. I mean, he's probably teaching in Aramaic, right? He mm-hmm. probably speaks in Greek, but he's probably teaching Aramaic. So already we recognize that whatever we're reading in the Greek New Testament is at least a translation, but it's also a collection, and it's also a, a, a crafting and a shaping, you know, I would say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit— um, in the evangelist. So the short answer to that is, um, I think what we have in the sermon is exactly what you'd expect in an ancient biography. Um, it is, to use a kind of technical term that we use in English as well, less technically, it's an epitome. That is, mm. an epitome is a collection of a philosopher or a teacher's sayings put together on a topic um, so that learners or disciples can memorize it and uh, study it and have it as a guide as they themselves grow in the life of discipleship. And I think that's exactly what Matthew is giving us. He, in fact, he gives us five epitomes in his gospel. If mm-hmm. anyone who studied Matthew a little bit would recognize that the Sermon on the Mount is actually just one of five discourses or five collections of teachings. In your introduction, you mentioned Calvin, and he actually explicitly says that. You know, the Sermon on the Mount are Jesus' teachings collected from other places in the other Gospels put together into this discourse, right? I mean, that's Calvin. That's not just some, you know, crazy modern liberal or something saying mm-hmm. that, you know. So there's this recognition that the function of the sermon is as a collection on a topic so that disciples can memorize and learn constantly from Jesus by having kind of a one-stop shop on this topic of what I would say is greater righteousness is what the topic of the sermon is. So, mm. just a, a a little a little clarification because so much of sure. your um, so much of your argument in the commentary is on the the reading of these sayings in the context of each other. And sort of sustained lines of reasoning and threads of theme that are kind of woven through, through the discourse. So, in treating this as an epitome, you, would would you say that 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 we're not only seeing, I guess, dominical sayings, but also dominical reasoning, in the way those sayings are being assembled? Yeah, I do. And uh, okay, you know. I'm the I'm the son of an English professor, and so literally, and so it may, may be why I love literary structure. Um, but I do think one of the keys, and one of the things I argue in the book, as you've probably seen, is that a key to reading the sermon well is to pay attention to the fact that it's a 
very highly structured, yeah. very beautifully crafted piece. And of course, Jesus was a master teacher. I mean, he obviously had that impact on people, and that was his, you know, deserved uh, reputation. And so certainly he was able to do this kind of rhetorical crafting and um, clever structuring of arguments. I mean, this is what people did in the ancient world. Educated people were all educated in rhetoric, you know, and how to mm-hmm. speak well. And so that's certainly dominical in that, you know, sense that it's from the Lord. And at the same time, what we have is what God has inspired Matthew to write down some 30 years later, right? right? And I don't mean by that, like there's a memory loss. I mean by that it's a well-honed, stylized, crafted report Mm-hmm. of the kind of things Jesus said and taught. And so I think the emphasis is really on how well-structured it is. And I think there are through lines of thought that go through it that are both from Jesus and then especially honed and put together in a in a Matthean way. Is that good at your question? Or? Oh, yeah, abs- absolutely, okay. absolutely. Because the, the, I, I think one of the, one of the conf- confusions that can be had, especially from someone coming from a, from a conservative uh, a more conservative kind of background of reading, uh, of of wanting to see the Gospels more as verbatim transcription, it would would be to hear uh, uh, to hear the argument about Matthean composition as this this is Matthew building a picture out of a bunch of isolated sayings that he could maybe make say whatever he wants because he's mixing them and matching right but a good disciple doesn't do that to his teacher right 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 (laughs) and that that would mean the disciple's probably better than the teacher and isn't worthy of following that you know the person that shouldn't be followed if the if the disciple has to come up with all the stuff then (laughs) maybe they should maybe they should be the teacher right right yeah i mean by all accounts jesus was a master teacher i mean people you remember the response even at the end of the sermon is this person teaches such authority and clarity you know that our our scribes don't so Mm -hmm. yeah well i really appreciated the way your reading of the Sermon on the Mount places it at the point where uh, Jewish wisdom literature and Greek virtue ethics are overlapping. So how do concepts like blessedness and perfection and the Greek words that Matthew, uh, the Greek vocabulary that Matthew draws on here, uh, how do they give us insight into the Sermon on the Mount's purpose? Yeah, good. Well, thanks for taking the time to read the book. That's the first thing I should have said at the beginning. But uh, <laughs> yeah, a, a big a big part of my argument is indeed that the sermon, and really all of early Christianity, is the child of two worlds. It is, mm-hmm. uh, it is a Jewish document. Obviously, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. He's coming from the world of Judaism. He sees himself, apparently, and the apostles see him as consummating the story of Israel, bringing it mm-hmm. to its, its, its climactic moment, its turning point, and inaugurating its final phase. So, you know, it's, it's Jewish, first and foremost, and God has revealed himself in Torah and in the prophets, and, and that's all in continuity. Yet this Jewish world has undergone a, an inevitable, um, or it's, say it this way, this Jewish world exists in a context like every religion or every uh, idea does that it's interacting with. And that context is that of the Greco-Roman world. And 
the you know the term we use a lot of times is that it's a thoroughly that Second Temple Judaism is thoroughly Hellenized, mm-hmm. meaning that going back to the fourth century BC under the influence of Alexander the Great, uh, whose tutor was Aristotle. Note, always good to remember uh, that that the whole of the Mediterranean and beyond all the way into India were deeply influenced by Greek thought and Greek culture. And then, of course, by the time of the first century, the Roman Empire is now the political authority, and they you know, have their own culture as well. But it's largely rooted in um, a lot of Greek culture and ideas. You know, they just, Zeus becomes Jupiter, and, you know, just the gods come over, a lot of the stories mm-hmm. come over, a lot of the you know, Seneca is certainly a great Roman philosopher, certainly influenced by Greek philosophical systems. So, so the point is that whenever we're reading the New Testament, we have to remember, uh, after all, first it's written in Greek, it's not written in Hebrew, that's very significant, and that it's coming to us as the story of Israel, the story of God's redeeming work in the world, now in and interacting with the culture of the Greek and Roman world. And what that means is, that to read it well means to really uh, understand what it's speaking into and the language that it's using. And I mean by language, not just Greek. I mean the cultural encyclopedia in which mm. it's in which it exists. And that cultural encyclopedia is one where there are lots of philosophers uh, traveling around and teaching. And even though they teach different things, they all are teaching the same idea, which is. This is the way to experience true human flourishing, or colloquially in English, we, call, we might call it blessedness. Um, but as you know, if you've looked at the book, I don't really like that as a translation. I think it confuses things a little bit. But the point is that um, the culture of the day uh, is one where philosophers are offering true life. Mm-hmm. And I'm suggesting that Matthew, the Jesus himself, is presenting himself that way. But Matthew, particularly writing a Greek biography to a Greek culture, is saying Jesus is the true philosopher who's offering true life, and here's, here's evidence of it, and mm-hmm. here's how to think about it. So your question, so it's kind of a long-winded answer, your, your question about blessedness and perfection, um, that word blessedness, the reason I don't like it is because that doesn't quite get across what is behind Matthew's concept there. Mm-hmm which is the idea of really flourishing more. Mm. And, the, and, and the section of this where it comes up most obviously is the Beatitudes, those opening parts of the sermon. Well, that word for flourishing, makarios, and the word for perfection, teleos, those are both heavy-duty, very familiar Greek philosophical terms. Mm-hmm. And for any reader of Matthew, when he or she would hear those words said, that would key into, or we might say from a cognitive linguistics perspective, it would run the scripts of philosophy. That is, someone traveling around teaching what true life is, which mm. is what philosophy was in the ancient world. So those ideas, um, I think, are really crucial. Those are a couple of the fingerprints on the crime scene that helped me finally see, oh, this is a piece of wisdom literature. This is a this is Jesus as a sage, Jesus as a philosopher, and the, there are other things too, but those are a couple of the big big fingerprints, I guess, or mm-hmm. guns left at the scene of the crime that show us that what Matthew's trying to do is show the sermon as a 
a, again, a, an epitome of philosophical discourse that's offering true human flourishing uh, is what I was trying to argue there. hope that's clear. You want to ask any follow-up on that or that get at your answer or your question? Well, I, I really appreciate the way that you the way that you brought in that context because it can be very easy to read certain parts of the Sermon on the Mount simply as here is now an even stricter law. And if you're thinking right. of thinking in thinking in those kinds of terms, it leaves out all of the ways um, that I think you show that Jesus is is dealing with the topic not only of good and evil, but also of how as a human to be whole and healthy and um, not only f fulfilling the law, but fulfilling human human purpose. Yeah, entering into fullness of humanity, or to, to use an Aristotelian phrase that Paul also uses, the teleosoner, the the mm -hmm. complete human, the the human who has come into fullness of humanity and through virtue. I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. clearly what's being said uh, in the sermon as well. Yeah. Um, this is uh, this is this is kind of a side question, but in the in the literary context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the the crowd that's at the beginning of five one is introduced at the end of chapter four, as having been drawn from several different regions, um, including the Tin Cities uh, uh, in, in, in the East. Um, mm -hmm. Could Matthew have been making that, that kind of reference to the mixed audience of Jesus? Could he been, have been making that kind of reference in order to invite um, a Greek reading of the sermon to, by suggesting mm -hmm. that there are people in the crowd who would be listening with those sorts of ears? I've never thought of it that way, but that seems reasonable. I'll have to think more about that. Uh, second edition. Thanks. I'll, I'll steal that. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe. I mean, I think it, it's certainly reasonable because I think there are so many other things that are obviously appealing to that world. Right. And, and again, it's always good to remember that Judaism itself is Hellenized. So it's not as if right, there's right. just there's the Jewish world and then you have another choice, which is the Greek world. It is a Greekified Jewish world, right? And I don't mean by that that Ju Hellenized Judaism is the same as the rest of Hellenism. It's not because the you know the core is still Jewish, right. but everybody is interacting and living inside a culture, and the culture in which they're living is this hybrid of of Greek ideas. I mean, you know the 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 industry, the economy, the government, uh, the educational system. Mm -hmm. It's all, you know, we're three centuries into its influence, the, the Greek influence on it. So right. I, I, I think it's, it's an e once you sort of see it, it's like, oh, of course, that's why it, it reads this way. But it's remarkable that we haven't read it that way for quite a while. Okay. Uh, this is how the Church Fathers read the sermon. That's my point. I mean, for the Church Fathers, they entirely understood the sermon this way. And the book I'm working on currently is called Jesus, the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering a Lost Image. And... Mm. What I'm arguing there, it kind of spins off of this book, is that all throughout um, the Bible itself and then in the Church Fathers, it's very easy to see that they present Jesus as the true philosopher of the world, and they're getting that right out of how they read the Gospels. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's just a seamless reading that we've lost, I think. 
especially with uh well the, the the suspicion of things that greek philosophy are 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 supposed to have done to the christian tradition um right <laughs> But, yeah, I don't share the I don't share that anxiety. <laughs> but you're right. But that you always have to remember that's a very much an enlightenment argument. Ah. I mean, that is that that those are the enlightenment critics of Christianity dismissing, and they know what they're doing, dismissing Orthodox Christianity by accusing it of being um, influenced by Platonism and other things like that. And I, and mm-hmm. I'm not saying there wasn't any of those influences. All I'm saying is that as Christianity unfolds it's always adopting and adapting itself to whatever culture it, it, it interacts with. And mm-hmm. that's, that can't be the criterion by which, whether we judge whether it's orthodox or not, because right. every, that's the genius of Christianity, is that as it encounters cultures, it takes them in and it also transforms them. So mm-hmm. that American 21st century Christianity is very different than 6th century Spanish Christianity or second century North African Christianity or 21st century Malaysian Christianity, right? I mean, we'd say that there's a Orthodox core of it, but beyond that, there's a lot of variation. And that's very different than say Islam, which at least in theory, it still ends up having to some degree, the, the culture is embedded into the theology. So in other words, as the religion spreads, the culture must go with it. That's a huge, and Judaism as well, right? Mm-hmm. But that's a huge difference, I'd suggest, with Christianity. And I say all that to say the idea that early Christianity is interacting with and framing itself in terms of Greek philosophy shouldn't be of any concern. That's the genius of Christianity, mm-hmm. um, I'd suggest. So. Yeah, I, we don't necessarily have time to to follow that thread um, through through your book, but I did I did appreciate the ways that you. Um, draw out of the Sermon on the Mount, the idea that, that God's people are now defined in terms of their relation to the one who's doing the teaching, not necessarily their ethne or, uh, or, or heritage in that sense, that, that there is a, a, a redefinition of the people that's happening right now. Well, one of the major concerns, uh, in your book, and especially in the the the, the theological um, statements, uh, the the theses that you that you list in the at the end of the book, is that the virtue ethics of the Sermon on the Mount square with a theology of grace. Now, right. I'm going to be devil's advocate, man. So, how can Jesus be calling us meaningfully to a greater righteousness, and that not be a salvation by merit? especially when the disciples' entrance into the kingdom of heaven and his escape from coming judgment depends on that greater righteousness. Right, right. Yeah, and I hope you're just playing devil's advocate, because if that's not clear (laughs) in the book, if that's not clear in the book, I've definitely failed, um, because I care about that question, too. Um, But yeah, so, and what drives it, of course, is what I argue is part of the thesis statement of the entire sermon. Mm-hmm. I think the thesis or the proposition of the sermon is 517 to 20, but mm-hmm. I'll just quote 520 at the end of it. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, mm-hmm. you have a couple of choices with that. You can either do what the Lutheran and a lot of the Protestant tradition does with that. It says, well, that just shows, um, you know, the Sermon on the Mount just shows us that we're horrible or, you know, we cannot, reach God, and so we need imputed righteousness. 
And while I always say, I mean, that's for sure Orthodox Christianity, that's also for sure not what Matthew 520 is talking about. And all you have to do is read read the rest of the sermon to see and the rest of Matthew to see that while Matthew certainly has a very high atonement theology, that Jesus dies to save his people from their sins, you see that in chapter 1, you see it in chapters 26 and 27, mm-hmm. even though that's certainly there as the frame, that's not what Matthew's concerned about in the Sermon on the Mount or all of the rest of his teaching. He's showing Jesus as actually calling people to a greater righteousness, and and that means, and if you look at righteousness in Matthew, it's pretty clear that what righteousness in Matthew doesn't mean imputed legal forensic or something. It means actual, a way of being in the world uh, that accords with God's coming kingdom. Or How I define righteousness in the book in Matthew is um, whole person behavior that, agor- that accords with God's uh, coming kingdom. Mm. And so that now that doesn't still get us off the or the question that you're asking, which is a good one, how does that, I mean, that actually makes it worse, right? If that's what Matthew means by you have to have this actual whole person behavior that accords with God's kingdom, how in the world does that relate to grace? Well, as an evangelical Protestant, I mean, I'm very concerned about that question. And what I try to answer in the book all throughout, and then it comes up in the final chapter, I hit that head on. Um, what I'd suggest is that we have as Protestants, we have straightjacketed ourselves with this false dichotomy that's not in the Bible, that virtue and grace are opposites of each other. Mm. Um, but they're not. Grace is God's initiating, enlivening, you know, enlivening, making us alive, um, sustaining, consummating um, power um, and kindness towards us that is the root of all and the basis of all of any hope we would have to have a relationship with God. And, and now, in a, uh, you know, we were dead and he made us alive. So it's absolutely true. But that's not the opposite of what the Bible also talks about, which is that God wants to make us to be a certain kind of people. Mm. And that's what we could call virtue, that he's forming us, to use explicitly biblical language, he's reforming us into the image of God in Christ. You know, you have to read Romans and Second Corinthians in one hand and the other, and you'll see that how the Gospels portrayed on the question of can you earn your favor with God? The answer is no, it's all grace. On the question of what does the Gospel look like in our lives? The answer is you're being transformed from one image to another, mm-hmm. from an image of death to an image of glory, from a broken, cracked image of God in us to a restored full humanity. And a big part of the burden of, my, of the book theologically is to try to give Protestants a way to think about that and talk about it, because I think the Sermon on the Mount forces us to face that if our understanding of grace is the opposite of virtue, that's not really biblical grace or biblical virtue. Mm. And, and, but instead, those two things are, um, are what, got, what the gospel really is, God's all-encompassing grace that transforms us to be a different kind of people, to be different in the world now and in the future. So that would be my stab at trying to put those together. I don't know how that satisfies you, but uh, there's <laughs> a lot more that could be said, certainly. Well, when you, the, the, the emphasis, well, in the sermon and in the book, uh, continuing to insist on, uh, it, is the, it is those who are the children of the Father in heaven who behave this way. 
um, mm. and they're not the children in the father of the Father in heaven simply because they behave like the children of the Father in heaven, but um, as uh, something that the rest of the New Testament teases out, there actually is an organic connection mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's being that that's coming out. No, I, I really I really appreciated that because m- much of what I've heard. Um, I, I've heard Sermon on the Mount from two different perspectives, mainly in my in my Christian life growing up, as here are the higher standards, and mm-hmm. good luck with that, and yeah. here are the higher standards, and this is why we can't ever reach them. So aren't you glad there's grace? Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I liked the. Uh, I, it's not really a balance between those two extremes so much as it is. Um, charting a course without crashing on either of those rocks <laughs> that's good yeah thank you I'm, I'm i that's that i was conscious over the years of teaching and trying to figure out how to say this and i'm you know it's always in continued development in my mind of saying it better mm-hmm. but you don't ever as my uncle always said you don't ever finish writing a book you just quit at some point you know and that's <laughs> kind of what happened you know i got to a point where i, thought, I gotta finish this you know um, but you know, my thoughts continue to develop of how to say it but yeah i i think that's what i'm trying to get at. i'm not i'm not actually trying to enter into that debate because i feel like it's stuck it's ruts are stuck mm-hmm. or too deep but i'm trying to kind of slice the gordian knot and saying hold the phone we're not thinking about this if we think about if we frame it differently which i think is in the text i would suggest it actually gets us past this self-imposed straitjacket of pitting transformation versus grace or something and i hope that it provides a kind of way to understand the whole ethics of the bible actually i mean because mm-hmm. and the sermon playing a really crucial role in that that's my hope for the book certainly mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to get into some of the particulars, and obviously we can't talk all the way through 5, 6, and 7. <laughs> we have about 20 minutes left. Sure. But what are a few passages in the Sermon on the Mount that you think are commonly misunderstood or mishandled that your approach to it through through virtue ethics, through this insistence on um, greater righteousness as whole person righteousness, uh, that this approach can correct. Mm. Yeah. Well, of course, by the book, that's the first answer, right? Just kidding. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yes, yeah, the, by the book. Yeah. There's a lot of passages. I mean, it's such a powerful and beautiful thing, but I'll just rifle through some. The first that would come to mind is how it starts. And that's the Beatitudes, um, mm. which again, a big part of that has to do with even how to translate that word Makarios. And I, yeah. as you know, I have an entire chapter on what that word means, and how to render it, admitting the ongoing perplexion I feel about how to translate it. I've translated it as flourishing, so I would render the Beatitudes as flourishing are the poor in spirit, flourishing are the mourners, flourishing are the better. I don't love it. I think it's better than blessed, um, <laughs> because I think it, I think it gets at um, it gets at what Matthew. Matthew's getting at and what Jesus is getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's really crucial, and I, and I think that's a good place to start, that um, a big part of my whole argument in the book, as you know, is that uh, the Beatitudes are not giving us a new set of entrance requirements. That's one reading. Like, if you do this, God, that's probably the most common reading of them for people who just haven't had a chance to kind of think through it or be instructed in it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they're giving new entrance requirements. Nor are they exactly as uh, the opposite reading of that is that they're they're just um, 
they are saying these things, but those things are only true because God first made them true of us or something. And so it's just kind of a, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the function of them is in that scenario. <laughs> what I'm suggesting is that they are actually a vision. Uh, they are a vision of the way of human flourishing to invite us to pursue that way of being in the world, not mm. as entrance requirements, but as a yielding to God as a, as a, um, in response to his grace and his, we'll see at the end of Matthew, Jesus actually making a new covenant with his people in response to this. It's a vision of how to be in the world. And that those are uh, one of the things that's good to understand about the whole Bible and talk about the gospels here in particular is they're on a constant program to reorient our values and I think the, the Beatitudes really are trying to give us a vision for what God cares about and and how then to pursue being in the world as his children. Um, but again, that's not the opposite of grace. That's the point. That's, that's something to pursue. So, so it's not this kind of, if you do this, God will bless you. It's instead, uh, here's this statement about what true human flourishing looks like. And then that's why the second part is there in each of the Beatitudes. So flourishing or the poor in spirit, that's crazy talk, actually, because mm -hmm. to say flourishing looks like poverty of spirit is the opposite of what humanity would think, and that's why the second half of each beatitude is there. Why, why is this not crazy talk? Because theirs is actually kingdom of heaven. Flourishing mm -hmm. are the mourners? What? Mourners? How could that be flourishing? Why? Because they will be comforted. Flourishing are the humble, the ones who give up their rights and don't seek to justify themselves and even positions of honor they might even deserve? How could that be flourishing? Because they'll actually inherit the world. Flourishing are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's again, a, that's a that's a state of deprivation. Hungry and thirsting are bad. How is that a state of flourishing? Because they will actually be satisfied, and it goes on throughout. And so, I think a big a big thing that was really important to me in the teaching of the sermon and the writing of the book was getting at what the Beatitudes are really doing, because I think they're so commonly misunderstood and probably even just confusing to people. Like, mm -hmm. once you start thinking about them, like, what, what are you supposed to do with these things? And I'm suggesting to you they're part of Jesus's imagination in the sense of, like, he's trying to create a, a vision, and ima a social imaginary for us. He's trying to create a, a worldview, a a way of thinking and a way of being that we might pursue because that's how he himself is. Mm. So the Beatitudes, um, 548 uh, is another hugely misinterpreted and mistranslated uh, verse uh, in the sermon. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Mm. Uh, the word behind that, teleos in Greek, I also have a whole chapter in the book on that. Uh, teleos um, doesn't mean perfect in the sense that does in English, like free from sin or free from error or pure, totally. What perfect or what telas means is more complete or mature, or I like to translate it as whole, W-H-O-L-E. Mm. So I translate Matthew 5.48 as be whole as your Heavenly Father is whole. And what I understand that to be saying is even as God is light and consistent and true on the inside and outside, if you can kind of talk of it that way in human terms, so too we must be. Mm. And uh, that gets at, I should have said this when we were talking about greater righteousness, that's 
I said whole person behavior. What I mean by that whole person is that the inside of us needs to match the outside. So according to Jesus, hypocrisy is actually where you are externally good, but your heart is far from God. Your inside doesn't match your outside. That's the hypocrisy of the sermon. And and that, I think, is really, I guess, at the overall, to your question, you know, things we've misunderstood in the sermon, that's probably what it comes down to the most, is that we need to understand the sermon is not a new law. It's, uh, it's the old law revealed, not the Mosaic Covenant, but I mean something bigger than the Mosaic Covenant, how mm-hmm. God wants His people to be. It's the, it's the old reality opened up to be fully clear that God doesn't care about our righteous deeds if our hearts are far from Him, mm. that God doesn't care about our religion if our hearts aren't focused on loving Him and loving others. And that's Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees, I think, at its core. And so, you know, overall, I think every aspect of the sermon is kind of driven by that idea, and once you get that, I think it it uh, makes sense of the, of the whole sermon. I really appreciated the uh, the explanation of hypocrisy. Um, I, I, of course, we, we often, we usually think of hypocrisy as those who, who say one thing and do another thing, and that's not... Which is also true. I mean, that's yeah, also that's... kind of hypocrisy, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Just to be clear. <laughs> right, right, right. That is also hypocrisy. But it's not necessarily this, of, the, of the sort that uh, Jesus points to the Pharisees for. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, they're good. They're good people morally. There's no doubt. I mean, they weren't, um, you know, licentious and, you know, promiscuous and murderous. They were good people. They were the religious people of the day. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what's so pointed and powerful and poignant about Jesus teaching is that you could be religious, but if your heart isn't oriented toward God, then it's nothing, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and towards your neighbor in particular kinds of ways. Absolutely. Totally. That's right. You're right. The greatest aspect of the, the most clearest, the clearest uh, manifestation of righteousness, according to Matthew, is mercy toward others. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you sort of double click on the theme of mercy slash forgiveness of others in Matthew, it will like light up all over the place. It will be the pathway that leads you off the plane, you know, or something nice. if the lights go out. I mean, the, the mercy theme is all over the place. And that's a primary sense of what righteousness means. Um, one of the cool places you see that right at the beginning of the book is that the first person uh, that we meet, um, and the first person, and really one of the very few people who's actually called righteous in Matthew, is Joseph, mm. um, you know, the adopted father. And he's particularly called righteous because when it turns out that his fiance is pregnant and he knows it's not his. And he had every right to shame her publicly, even have her killed, but at least to socially shame her. He chooses to show mercy on her and put her away quietly before the angel even appeared to him, before he had any idea what was going on. And Matthew goes out of his way to say Joseph was a righteous man and desired to put her away secretly as an act of compassion, I think is the point. And And then that theme just goes throughout Matthew that the righteous people are the ones who show compassion towards others. Oh, wow. (laughs) <laughs> I had no. Oh, I had never thought of Joseph in that way. Man, yeah, he, he's the first exemplar in the New Testament. In the Old New Testament, he's the first exemplar of morale of righteousness. I'd say. Man, I I I saw that clearly in the sermon, but I, I I had never noticed that Matthew starts working that in that early. That's 
that's really cool. <laughs> it is beautiful. Well, I, I think we're pushing up against uh, pushing up against time here, and uh, I want to. Uh, well, on Christian humanist profiles, uh, our our tradition we follow our tradition, is to give our Good. guests the last word. That's what hospitality means to us. Good. So, so what thoughts do you want to leave our listeners with as we end this conversation, other than go buy the book? Yeah, that's the <laughs> obvious one, right? <laughs> makes makes a great stocking stuffer, as I always say. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it's been, it's a total honor to get to talk about one's work, and so I First, you know, just want to give a very sincere thank you for that and for the thoughtful reading you've obviously done of the book. So I'm thankful for that. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I would just appeal to all of our listeners um, to just recognize that uh, Jesus is beautiful mm-hmm. and he is being presented in the scriptures. And we'll talk about Matthew here, particularly as um a wise and beautiful philosopher king who is inviting us uh, with open arms. And my favorite passage of the whole Bible also comes from Matthew, and I think it relates very closely to the sermon. It's uh, 11, 25 to 30. I'll just quote 28 to 30. Um, Come uh, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Uh, for my burden is light and, and easy. And, you know, that, um, I, I would just want us to all leave, start and end every day with that image of who Jesus is, open-armed, beautiful, and inviting us uh, to take his yoke upon ourselves, to, to bend our necks towards him, because he's loving that he might crown us with this yoke that, that sounds like a bad thing, but it is a, it is the place of freedom. And, and I love I love St. Augustine, and what Augustine says about this passage is so beautiful. He says that the yoke, Jesus' yoke, is like the burden of feathers to a bird. That is, yes, you know, feathers would make do make a bird heavier than if not, but feathers are what enable it to fly. Mm. And as as you think about the sermon. I wouldn't want you to read it as just something that's telling you how horrible you are and you can't do, or something that is just, yeah, good luck with this. Instead, it's an invitation to yield ourselves to the one who's offering true life and take his yoke upon us and live in his way, and we will find life and freedom and fullness and, and joy. So I think that's you know, the image I'd like to leave with us today. Ah, oh, that's excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Pennington. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. Well, dear listeners, that's all we have time for today. We've been having a conversation with Dr. Jonathan Pennington, the author of Sermon, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, a Theological Commentary. It's hot off the presses from Baker Academic. I'll be posting a link to that publisher's page for the book in the show notes. The show notes you can find on our blog, christianhumanist.org. If you want to leave feedback on this episode or ask any questions or make comments, you can post them on the show notes at the blog, christianhumanist.org. You can also email them to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or you can post them on our Facebook page. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, We appreciate that. It helps more people see us. Uh, Also, we appreciate good iTunes reviews. 
I'm David Grubbs. I'm a host for the Christian Humanist Profiles. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is the illustrious Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.